Let's pray. Thank you so much, Lord Jesus, for the words of that song. Um, thank you. That is not just a song for Samuel and Emily and, and the other children. It's a song for all of us, from youngest to oldest, that through trusting in Jesus, we have this confidence that when Jesus comes back, as he will, that we will see him and go to be with him. Thank you for this glorious hope. And as we look at your word together now, Lord, make that hope real to us, please, for your glory and for our joy. Amen. Right, well, uh, I've realised, everybody, that uh, it's probably been quite a while since I've shown you a, a map. So I thought I'd show you a map this morning. Probably should have done this at the start of the letters to the churches. But just take a look at this one now. So the, the letters to the churches that Dave and I have been preaching to you about um, over the last few weeks, uh, this is a map that shows their location. So I, I want to ask you to imagine this morning that um, as we go through these last three letters to the seven churches, that you are the courier carrying um, that letter, that book, really, from John to the seven churches. Don't know if it was one copy that you took and then got copied in, the, in each church along the way, or whether you had seven copies. I'm not sure exactly how it worked. But imagine that you are that courier. I'm going to say a bit more about that in a moment. But uh, you are following that route. Now, I can't remember if I said this at the start, but basically it seems that these letters to the seven churches are written basically in the order of the postal route that you would have followed taking that letter to the churches. So hopefully you can see there on the map. Um, can you see the map, by the way? Can you nod and wave if you can see the map? I brought a check. Can everybody see it? Great. Um, you see Patmos underlined and a little, a little arrow to a very little island there. That's the island of Patmos on which John was exiled. And then starting in Ephesus and following that arc up and around, that would have been the, the order through which, in all likelihood, the sequence through which the letter would have gone to the churches. Ephesus, then Smyrna, then Pergamum, then Thyatira, and then lastly, the three letters this morning, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea, through Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. So try and keep that. I won't show it the whole time. I'm going to take it off in a second. But try and picture that route as you think about the letters we're looking at this morning. And try and imagine that you are, as I say, you are the courier taking those letters to the churches. As you go to those last three churches, I wonder which one or ones you would have been particularly drawn to. That's a question I've asked previously, I know, but I'm going to ask it again this morning. Which of those churches, the last three that we're going to look at this morning, would you have visited? And on first impressions, at least, or maybe you, maybe as the courier, you had to stay there for a week or two. What were your impressions over that short period of time over those, of those churches and to which ones would you have been drawn? Now, I know that we're cheating. We have the spoilers. We know which of these churches Jesus praises and which he doesn't. But try and think about, on the surface anyway, which ones would you have been drawn to as we look at the three of them? Let's look at Sardis. Let's start there. Sardis had a golden past, literally. Um, Sardis was linked with, the, with King Midas and the legend about him that everything he touched turned to gold. And then after King Midas, there was uh, King Croesus, a very real king who was fabulously rich. So Sardis had had a literally golden past. It had been a rich and a glorious city. But now it was quite grotty, frankly. It had, it had gone into decay over the centuries, but especially since an earthquake that had taken place in AD 17, decades before John wrote his letter to that church. It had gone into decay, but was still resting on its golden past. 
Like the city, the church, it appears, was also resting on its past reputation. But here's the thing. On first impressions, it seems likely that you would have also had the impression as the courier that this church had a good reputation for a reason. As you're staying there for a week or two, you're seeing that it's a good church on the surface. It's doing lots. Verse 2 again refers to its deeds. It was doing stuff, enough stuff to maintain its old reputation as being alive. So the services, the ceremonies, the activity, it was all there, just like we've seen in other churches like Ephesus. It was all there. But if that's the impression you get as you get to Sardis, you, that's the impression as the courier to the churches you receive. But as you open the letter and read it, maybe for the first time when you get there, you see that Jesus says, actually, that church has no life or virtually no life anyway. It's spiritually dead or as good as. These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up, strengthen what remains and is about to die. It's almost like Jesus almost changes his mind. He says, you're dead. Well, actually, you're not quite dead, but you're almost dead. You're on life support. Spiritually speaking, this church which still maintained its good reputation, was weak. Its spiritual pulse was almost undetectable. Its spiritual breathing was shallow and almost not there. Why? Well, it had been swamped by the culture. He says, you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. So most of them had soiled their clothes. They had compromised. They had just allowed the, the culture to seep into them and into their church. They'd, they'd let the word of God move from center space in their church life. Remember, he has to say to them, what you received and heard. The word of God and the gospel, they'd let that move away from center place. So do you see the picture with this church? Bridge Church, we, we need to be looking at every single one of these churches and asking what it says to us as a church and us as individuals. Do you see the picture? This church had a good reputation. It had a great history, a good heritage. It had street cred with other churches. It had physical comfort. Interestingly, it seemed to lack overt persecution. And this had made them complacent in the battle. As, as you read through Revelation, what you'll see again and again is this imagery, this behind the scenes peak at history, which shows that for the church, for the Christian, we realize we're in a spiritual battle. Sardis had forgotten or chosen to forget that they were in a spiritual battle, just as had happened with the city. Do you know, a little tidbit of information for you on, on this city, Sardis. Over the centuries, although it was practically impregnable, its position as a city made it very hard to conquer. On two occasions, that's exactly what had happened. It had been conquered. Enemies had managed to penetrate its defenses because Sardis had got complacent, the city, and their enemy had taken them over. And this is exactly what the church of Sardis is in danger of doing and letting happen. Isn't this tragic? Isn't this all too easy for any church? But of course, there's a window of hope here because it's Jesus that's being dealt with. Jesus in his love shouts to them, wake up. He tells them to remember, remember the gospel they've moved away from. Repent, 
turn back to Jesus as their everything. And if they don't, what does he tell them? Verse 3, he will come like a thief and surprise this church with a good reputation by closing it. So what does the bridge church learn from the church in Sardis? Well, there's a whole bunch of things as with each of these letters, but let me just mention one thing before we start moving on to the next church. Jesus doesn't care about our reputation. Jesus doesn't care about our reputation. I suppose he does care about our reputation as far as it impacts on his reputation and his glory, yes. But do you know what? In terms of having street cred with other churches or with the community around us, in terms of them thinking we're great and thinking we're popular, Jesus doesn't care about our reputation. He cares that we cling to his word and that we love the good news and that we live the gospel. What do we honestly care about most? Do we care about all the other things that matter to Sardis or do we care about the reputation of Christ and his gospel and having him at the center of our church life? Jesus is watching. We need to ask these questions. So that's a pretty bleak picture for the church in Sardis, isn't it? And if there's another church that has an even bleaker picture, it's Laodicea. So I'm jumping out of sequence here for reasons that might be obvious, but let's look at Laodicea next. Again, first impressions, you the courier arrive in the church of Laodicea, first impressions would have been really positive. This was a well-off church, a sophisticated church. It was a solid church. It was secure. You know, as you looked at the, the bank statements, as you looked at what it was doing in the, in the community, or um, as you, you looked at how secure people were in their individual lives, it was, it was a solid church. The city was, was a great, solid city. The, the city was renowned for having a medical college, a very famous medical college, and actually so famous that in the, the world of the time, it was famous for its eye salve. There was an eye ointment that had been invented there uh, that was famously very effective, and the, the city of Laodicea was known for this. So the city was well-off, sophisticated, and solid, just like the church. Except, of course, there's a deeper reality that Jesus sees. And again, as you open up the letter, having seen the first impressions of the church, you start to see what Jesus sees. And Jesus says that this rich, solid church and this rich, solid city was actually poor, wretched, and gut-wrenching to Jesus. Listen to what Jesus says to the church of Laodicea. Verse 16. Because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. Literally, I'm about to spew, I am about to vomit you out of my mouth. Let's let that sink in for a second. This means that good churches, I say good in inverted commas, churches that to the visitor, to the person looking for a new church from a distance, Churches that look really, really good can disgust Jesus. There is nothing positive said about Laodicea. Did you notice that? All the other churches, to some degree, even if it's just a teeny bit, have something positive said about them. And the church in Laodicea, nothing at all positive said about it. Their heart, their complacency, their resting on their riches made them 
spiritually lukewarm and disgusting to Jesus. You know, when you pick up a piece of food, a nice piping hot food to eat it, and actually it's gone cold, lukewarm, bleh, you just want to spit it back out. Or you go to pick up that nice hot steaming cup of coffee and take a swig, and actually it's almost cold, but not quite. It's gone down to room temperature. It's horrible, isn't it? This church has that effect on Jesus. Just as the city was rich and arrogant, uh, the, the city in the earthquake of AD 17 and refused imperial money to rebuild the city. We don't need it, emperor, because we can sort it out ourselves. And this was the attitude of the church as well, because the church was rich and arrogant because it had been seduced by comfort like the city around it. It was spiritually putrid to Jesus. Their riches had numbed them to their poverty. Their pride over their medical college and their eye ointment and their fame obscured the fact that they were actually blind, ironically, for a city that had invented this wonderful eye salve. Their expensive clothes fooled them into overlooking their nakedness. That's a terribly embarrassing, cringy image, isn't it? They were naked, stood there naked in front of Jesus, and they didn't even realize it because they thought they were richly clothed. And because of all this, they're on the verge of being spewed out by Jesus because their self-satisfaction made them spiritually putrid in his sight. Think about it. Reliance on self rather than relying totally on God is the essence of pride and sin, isn't it? And this is what you see in the church in Laodicea. Terrible picture, terrible picture. And yet, yet, this amazes me. Look at the mercy of Jesus. For one thing, he calls them a church. He's still calling this church just a church. And he warns them. He doesn't just go, that's enough. I, I've, I've had enough of you. I'm spewing you out. No, no. Before he does that, he's about to do it. But before he does it, he warns them. He knocks at the door of this church and calls them to repent. He knocks on the door, telling them he's on the outside. By the way, as he's knocking on the door of this church, again, what you see at the end of all these letters, he's speaking to individuals in the church as well. Don't forget this corporate individual dimension and that the corporate and individual overlap. We need to hear what these letters say to church, us as a church, but to us as individuals too. This is the mercy of Jesus for churches and individuals who have grown lukewarm. They're slipping away from Jesus. What does Jesus do? Does he say immediately, no, I've had enough, I'm giving up? No, in his mercy, he knocks on the door of each church and each heart, and he says, let me in. You need me. What a tragic state, though, isn't it, for a church that Jesus is on the outside of this church. But what an offer of mercy. What a saviour. So those are the two. This is why we've done them in this order. Those are the two churches about which Jesus here at the close of the seven letters paints a terribly bleak picture. What a state those two churches are in. They appear so great. They've got great reputation and great riches. And by the way, reputation with other churches and with the people outside us, around us, that's not evil in itself, is it? It's not bad to have a good reputation. It's not bad to have riches. But if those things take center stage instead of Jesus, then the church is in a hopeless state. The center of these churches, the heart of these churches, was horribly cold, lukewarm, because they lacked the blazing center of the little church that I've skipped over, the little church in the middle, the one that we'll come back to now, the Church of Philadelphia. 
So again, imagine you're the courier. You've got to the Church of Philadelphia, having visited um, Sardis before you get to Laodicea. And this Church of Philadelphia, probably your immediate reaction is, well, okay, the people are nice, but I can't wait to move on from this place because this one is small. The numbers are small. It's got limited reach. It's got limited resources. If you as a courier have got the kids with you, the kids are probably saying after the first service on the first Sunday, oh, can we not stop here for too long? Can we move on to the next church? Because it's not impressive. And what's Jesus' verdict of this small, weak, relatively insignificant church? What's his verdict? His verdict is that this church has practically got a foot in heaven already. This church has an open door before it into heaven itself. I'll say more about that in a second, but we need to note here that just like the church in Smyrna, this church is paradoxically powerful. Jesus says to them, you have little power because in the eyes of the world, that's exactly what they had, little power. They've got few people not much money. They're on the receiving end of persecution, which it seems to be a common theme for the churches that Jesus praises. The synagogue of Satan, verse 9, are against them, just as we've seen previously in other churches. They're enduring patiently, verse 10. They're going through it, and they haven't got much, and yet they are victors. They are conquerors about whom Jesus has only positive things to say. Nothing negative to say about this little church. These people are the overcomers that Jesus wants the other churches to be like. You see this in the open door to heaven in verse 8. I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength and you've kept my word and not denied my name. Those words are wonderful. I've placed before you an open door that no one can shut. Now, uh, lots of commentators say that what Jesus is talking about here as he writes to this church is an open door of opportunity, of witness to the community around them. But that's not primarily what's been spoken about here, I believe. Part of the reason that people believe that is that, that Paul often, when he wrote his letters on several occasions, when he spoke about an opportunity to minister, an opportunity to witness, he talked about an open door. And so people think, well, that's what John's talking about here. Well, he's not precluding that. He's not ruling that out, of course. But that's not primarily what Jesus is talking about here in context. Don't forget, context is key, isn't it? Jesus is talking here about an open door into the kingdom of heaven itself, a door that he has opened and he is keeping open for them. Context. Context is key. Jesus is spoken of here as the one, verse 7, who holds the key of David. That's alluding to Isaiah chapter 22, where the Messiah, Jesus, is talked about as one who holds the key of David. He has the authority of David's kingdom. In other words, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. He is the Messiah with the authority over who enters the kingdom of heaven. That's what this open door is talking about. If you want more evidence, look at verse 12. The one who is victorious, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will they leave it. Those verses show 
that Jesus is holding out to faithful Christians the assurance of being in the new Jerusalem, the temple, heaven itself, the capital of the kingdom of heaven and of the new creation and being there forever. This is the hope held out to this church. What is the open door that Jesus is speaking of here? Speak of heaven itself, an open door into heaven itself. And if that's not, not enough evidence for you, for context, flick over the page to chapter 4. Dave's going to be preaching on this for us in two Sundays' time. Chapter 4, the throne in heaven. And John says, after this I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. This unimpressive, crummy little church going through persecution and under the heel of this, the community around us, this door has, this church, sorry, has a door held open for it into the kingdom of heaven, into heaven itself. Jesus is saying to them as they go through suffering for his name, I am holding open the door to you and it will not be shut. Carry on, persevere, you will be victorious. Just keep trusting in me. Think about the sort of church that Jesus is saying this to. He is saying it to the weak. He's saying it to those who, going back to verse 8, keep his word. He is saying it to those who own up to Jesus. They, they own his name. They keep his name. He is saying this to people who trust in Jesus and keep his word, even when they're going through pain and trials for it. Trials through which, verse 10, he will keep them. So is this talking about outreach and ministry in one sense? Of course it is, because Jesus wants and Jesus calls them to take many from their city through that open door into heaven with them. He doesn't want them just to think, oh, great, we're going there. He wants them to take many with them by sharing the good news of Jesus. But primarily this door open before them is speaking of a door into heaven itself. And it's a door that will not ever be shut to those faithful Christians. Because jumping back to verse five, and we don't have time to talk about it, maybe in the podcast, verse five, because their names are written in the book of life. Christian. If you hold to Jesus' word and believe it, and simply and even weakly trust in him, there is a door open before you into heaven, held open by Jesus, that will never be shut. Now, you might say to me, yeah, but Matt, you don't know how weak I am. I'm weak. Join the club. Join the Philadelphia club. Because they were weak. You might say, well, yeah, I hear what you're saying, but I lack assurance of that. Well, the good news is you're not saved by your assurance. You're saved by leaning into and leaning on and trusting Jesus and no one else. Do you believe, do you own the name of Jesus? Then the door into the kingdom of heaven is open to you. You're, you're there. One foot is in there already because you're seated in heavenly places with Christ Jesus. Paul said to the Ephesians, he owns you before the Father now because you've simply put your trust in him. Do you seek to keep his word? That is a sign that he keeps you and will always keep you.
That open door into heaven gives me such assurance and joy this morning, and I hope it does for you too, Christian, simply and maybe weakly trusting in Christ. Can I just throw a little image, a little picture at you as I draw to a close, Christian? Especially if you're a struggling Christian this morning. Did you know you got a tattoo? Uh, it's a spiritual one. By the way, before I get letters about this, I'm not necessarily encouraging or speaking against tattoos, physical tattoos. But no, you've got a spiritual tattoo, Christian. Look at verse 12 of chapter 3 of Revelation. I think these are such wonderful words. The one who is victorious, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will they leave it. You're in the temple of God. You're, you're in heaven. You're as good as there. I will write on them the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming out down out of heaven from my God. And I will also write on them my new name. You have a spiritual tattoo as a Christian, and that spiritual tattoo says basically property of God, address, new Jerusalem, new creation, heaven. Property also of the Lord Jesus Christ. And nothing and no one can wash that tattoo or laser that tattoo off. It can't be done. That is you, Christian. That is the church here, the little church, the little insignificant church in Philadelphia. So let me ask you, having seen what we've seen about those three churches, which church, which church had the blazing center? Maybe that the world didn't see, but which church had the blazing center? Which church had one foot in heaven? I'll tell you which one. It was the worldly, weak, word-obedient, suffering, enduring church. Jesus doesn't value what the world values. He just doesn't. His values are topsy-turvy to the world's. Listen, the bridge church could hit the big time. And it could lose the wonder of the gospel. Both those things scarily could be true. The bridge church could hit the big time and impress the world and impress other churches and lose the wonder of the gospel. It doesn't take long. It can take less than a generation for that to happen. You know, along with having Jesus and his word front and center in the life of the church, along with that go potential trials and suffering and poverty in the world's eyes. And Jesus is worth it. Hold on to him. And let's keep him, Bridge Church, as our blazing center, knowing that a door to heaven is open to us and will never be closed. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you that in your love for us, you say strong things to us as, as a church and as individuals. I thank you that as we've gone through these letters, I've heard from you, Lord, so many encouragements, so many things we can point to in the Bridge Church that we can say, yes, that's of Jesus and we're grateful for it and we're encouraged by it. Thank you for that, Lord. But thank you too, Lord Jesus, that as we've been going through these letters, we as individuals and as a church have been feeling you putting your finger on painful places in our lives. May we heed that, Lord, and respond to it. And Jesus, keep you and your word at the centre, no matter what. May that matter to us, Lord Jesus, more than reputation, more than riches, more than comfort. Be everything to us, Lord Jesus, and be our blazing centre, we pray for your glory. Amen. 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 Thanks, Mark.
And it's real challenge there, isn't there? Real challenge, but real hope. And we're going to share communion together. And let me encourage you to remove Matt's face and see everybody else's. So move to gallery view. And communion is a family meal. Um, and so we can see one another's faces as brothers and sisters in Christ as we share this meal together.